everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. Today we have episode 84. Today I'm going to talk a little bit about historic lumber. We're going to revisit the whole lumber pricing market, COVID, Ukrainian war type situation. Um, speaking of Ukraine, I'm going to talk a little bit about the lumber exports from the Ukraine. We're going to touch on rubber wood. And I want to talk a little bit about the sapwood that we find in a lot of our just everyday common hardwoods. But before that, I'm told that I don't make it as obvious as I should on how to submit a question to the show and how to contact the show. In my head, I feel like I say this all the time, although I'm probably not. So if you have a question for the show, if you have feedback for the show, if you want to make sure I knew about a certain article, if you want to tell me whatever, you can email me at lumberupdate.com at gmail.com or go to lumberupdate.com. There is a contact form there with which you can submit your questions. You can also find me at lumberupdate on Instagram. I check that. I get a fair a few questions in the comments on my post there, but also via direct message. So again, you can email me for those who say they don't know how to email me at lumberupdate at gmail.com. Now, uh, here's where I insert a subtle Mark Spagnolo segue. You know who does know how to email me? Those are my patrons. Yeah, those are the fine folks who have gone to patreon.com slash lumber update and sponsored the show. It takes a dollar a month or you can do a whole year type thing if you want. It doesn't take much, but it does keep the show going and I greatly appreciate it. And I might add, you can also submit your questions via the Patreon page if you're a Patreon sponsor. And uh, yeah, yeah, I don't think it's wrong to say that if you're a Patreon supporter and submit a question, that question pretty much gets bumped to the front of the line. Yeah, you know, membership has its privileges. Anyway, lumberupdate at gmail.com in case you didn't catch that the first time. So um, I want to kind of dive into some feedback here. Um, uh, Bart wrote in and he said, uh, thanks for your insight and passion in sharing your knowledge about lumber. As a, quote, guy in the woods with a lumber mill, I appreciate your growing enthusiasm for what we do. If you don't know, the last show was called Buying Lumber from a Guy in the Woods, from some guy in the woods, I think. Um, anyway, he goes on to say, when talking to the UVA folks about their lumber from Campus Trees Project, your enthusiasm was palpable. But I think in your excitement, you perpetuated an old myth about the relative carbon capture of young trees versus old ones. There is an emerging amount of research showing that actually bigger, older trees and forests capture and store much more carbon than younger, fast-growing forests. It's a trope that needs to be dropped from the feel-good stories around sustainability discussions. Here's one of many links to get you started down at the recent rabbit warren in this area of research. So I will include this link in the show notes as well. Bart, thank you for sending this because he's right. This is one of those things that kind of gets parroted a lot. You know, younger trees sequester more, more carbon. And I obviously am guilty of that as well. So technically that's not wrong. And I read this article and that led me to a few other articles. Younger trees are sequestering carbon at a faster rate. So they do take up more carbon-ish. It all comes down to the rate, a faster rate as they're growing faster. But the older a tree gets, the larger its canopy gets, the, the greater the surface area of its, of its total canopy. More leaves, more surface area per leaf. The more surface area per leaf sequesters more carbon. So a larger, older tree is going to sequester more total carbon, but at a slightly slower rate. But just because there's so many more leaves, 
the, you know, the, the, the net gain is a heck of a lot more carbon than a little tree with very few leaves. So, you know, we're kind of all right. You know, we, we can say, let's drop, I, I like his term here, let's drop the trope <laughs> that's being thrown around for sustainability. Let's face it, when you start talking about sustainability, there is a very, very present term called greenwashing. Everybody says their product is green and everyone says it's sustainable. But when you get down into the roots and look at the scientific studies, you know, you're going to find little wrinkles in here. And here's a perfect example. So um, I'm, I actually think this is great because I think it's a talking point. We can still say that replanting trees sequesters carbon at a faster rate, but we can also then go into that conversation a little bit deeper and say, recognize that the older trees are going to sequester more total carbon. In the end, one of the studies I looked at was talking about forests as a whole rather than one individual tree. It's easy to look at one individual tree and say this little sapling is sequestering at a really, really fast rate, but this 20-year-old tree is, is pulling more carbon as a whole out. But when you look at a forest and the, the complete biodiversity that exists within that forest, there was actually quite a few interesting studies that showed um, a certain sampling. It doesn't necessarily make sense to have just all old growth trees. They aren't necessarily pulling up as much carbon because the younger trees are creating other changes within that um, within that biome. Um, that on the whole, not just the trees, but like the moss on the ground and the ferns and things like that, that may not have as much sunlight because of the old growth canopy, they are sequestering carbon at a faster rate. And all told, the ground, um, the ground flora, um, all of the stuff that doesn't normally get the sunlight in an old growth forest in will begin sequestering carbon at a grand total more than the old growth trees. Obviously, this varies based upon the type of species, the climate, all that stuff. But as you can tell, it's a very, very complex topic, but still really, really cool to think about this. And, you know, the more we can get away from just kind of absolute terms like, oh, younger trees sequester more carbon. I think it's great that we have more knowledge around this. So Bart, again, thank you. Thank you so much for uh, submitting that um, that article and, and pushing me down that rabbit hole because I learned a lot on the way and you guys know me, I'm a nerd. I love to learn more stuff. Uh, next one is uh, Nicholas. Uh, if you remember why there was the last episode or a couple episodes ago, he wrote, had written in and said that he was having trouble buying lumber from some of his local sawmills. Like they didn't want to do business with him. So I was curious, you know, what the problem was. I gave him some opportunity to, to some questions that he asked and things like that. So Nicholas wrote back and said, um, ironically, your, your email and the feature on the show inspired me to try again with the same sawmill. Sure enough, I got through to the uh, ideal sawmill that's right down the road from where I grew up and they were very receptive. It just so happens that the owner isn't good at responding to phone calls or tech in general. Keep up the great work in the podcast. Love it. And I've sent them to many friends. Well, first of all, I appreciate that, Nicholas. Um, hopefully your friends care about lumber. <laughs> I could send this to a lot of friends and they'd be like, why are you sending this to me? Anyway, the point being here, one of the things I find with sawmills and little sawmills, gosh, even well-established sawmills, is they tend to have been in the business a very long time and you know, it's a small operation. The guy who's answering the phone is also the guy running the mill. So you never get anybody on the phone and they may be slow in returning those voicemails and they're terrible at responding to email. And, you know, sometimes it takes a while. Sometimes it takes some persistence. Sometimes it takes dropping in and visiting. Ironically, you find you get a better response just by driving out there and showing up unannounced. So a uh, good tip, Nicholas, and I'm glad that it's uh, working out for you. Hopefully it will help you continue to grow 
your lumber business. So anyway, let's, uh, let's dive into the questions for this week. Zachary emailed me at lumberupdate at gmail.com and he said, I recently came across someone on Etsy selling small handmade items with bits of wood in them from historic ships. After a little Googling, I wasn't able to find anyone online selling any of this material, but was curious if you might have some sources for such things. These were old Navy ships, USS Constitution, a few old submarines, etc. As a ship captain and woodworker, I love to incorporate something with this nautical history into my builds. What about sources for other historic reclaimed wood? All right, Captain Zachary. Captain, is your last name Steubing by any chance? That'd be cool if it was. Anyway, um, yes, I actually do have some insight into this. Um, at the day job, we actually are supplying some um, uh, genuine FEQ teak for uh, the battleship New Jersey, whose entire deck is decked in teak. And they've had to do a, quite a bit of restoration work on that. As part of that restoration work, the old teak decking that they're pulling up, they have actually been selling off um, uh, small pieces for like pin blank sizes, but they also have been contracting with some of the local woodworkers around the port who are making things, you know, little things, trivets, bowls, all kinds of fun kind of craft show items out of that material from the Battleship New Jersey. The USS Constitution was the same situation when it underwent a renovation and they had to tear out some of the wood. A lot of that wood was sold off to local woodworkers and the USS Constitution itself, um, the historical society, the nonprofit that that kind of runs the Constitution as a tourist attraction, uh, was selling some of that stuff directly through their gift shops, through their online website, things like that. Um, Yankee Stadium, when uh, there's another one, another project with that uh, my company had a hand in, we redid the skyboxes and they pulled out a lot of the wood from the old seats and things like that. Uh, Fenway did this as well uh, up in uh, Boston. And they sold off those blanks of wood for whatever. Um, they also sold a lot of the seats and things. And they did that, the actual entity, Yankee Stadium, um, whoever, I think it's just the Yankees, I don't know if they own the stadium or not. Like uh, in here in Maryland, the, the teams don't own the stadiums. The Maryland Stadium Authority owns them. So whoever it is, whoever the agency is that runs the stadium was selling those directly. They also did kind of some PR things where they reached out to local woodworkers and had things made from them. Um, the same thing has happened, uh, like I said, with USS Constitution. Uh, I know, again, several submarines in the same situation. Um, uh, uh, Faneuil Hall, the old North Church up in Boston, same situation. What happens is there has to be, you know, they're not just going to start ripping up boards in order to sell them for, for, to make a profit. There has to be another, like a restoration project going on that's requiring um, some demolition and replacement of material. Oh, oh, the Salk Institute was the other one that I was thinking of out on the West Coast. Um, Jonas Salk, the polio vaccine guy, there is a, a um, biosciences, health and human services type uh, facility out on the coast. Beautiful, beautiful facility. Very iconic architecture. When they redid all of the teak window walls, they sold off some of that material as well. So how do you find this? Um, well, certainly uh, going to a place like Etsy, you'll see the finished products. It's worth reaching out to that seller and asking them, where did you get it? Um, 
I know I found instances where some of like uh, in wood turning, like the wood turning supply houses, um, craft supplies or woodturningcatalog.com, uh, sometimes at Woodcraft, uh, Penn State Industries, all of those entities have from time to time sold historic pin blanks. I've seen pin blanks from the Constitution. I just got a catalog from Penn State the other day and there were some pin blanks from various ballparks, baseball parks around the country. Um, was it the Merrimack? No, that was one of the iron ships. One of the ships from the Revolutionary War, oh, I'm forgetting the name now, but um, they were selling that as well. So I think what happens is when that restoration project happens, if you are a buyer of lumber and you, especially if you're in, in the B2C world, like Penn State Industries or Woodcraft or something like that, you buy a bunch of this stuff, keep it in your own stock and sell it through your own website. So the timing has to be right. Um, to, because obviously there's a limited amount and it's not like they're always selling it. It's whenever that renovation is going. The Constitution has been through a couple of renovations and it's not going through one right now, at least as far as I know. So it's not like there's new material coming onto the market. So it can be very difficult to find that. I would definitely reach out to the sellers and ask them about their source. They should be you know, willing to do that. If nothing else, buy something from them and then ask them about the source. Do a little uh, fair... Uh, um, fair trade, but also reach out to these historic entities, reach out to the historic ships. The, uh, the Mayflower is, is a good example. Um, what's the one up in Mystic, Mystic, Connecticut? Uh, well, there's lots of submarines up there near the Groton um, sub base and everything. There's one in Mystic, Connecticut that's particularly uh, um, historic, doesn't matter. Go to those places um, with building ships, et cetera, and ask the entity, who is the foundation in charge of it? Colonial Williamsburg, go to the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation and ask them, hey, you're doing some renovation here. What is happening to that wood? Could I possibly purchase some of that wood to remake? More than, it's strongly likely, like let's stick with Williamsburg. They might actually say, yes, we can sell some of this to you or we can give some of this to you if you can sign some of those products back to us to sell in our gift shop. So it might even be a business opportunity for you to make some pens, make some bowls, make whatever, make you know cutting boards and have them for sale on the Duke of Gloucester Street in Colonial Williamsburg. Um, could be very possible. Sturbridge Village is another opportunity. Any of these historic uh, interpretive villages and things like that, you might find that type of opportunity. Um, sticking in Williamsburg, go to the Bruton Parish Church. They've done, they're doing renovation on that right now. And the Bruton Parish is an actual Episcopal parish. There is a gift shop inside, I don't know if it's inside the church. What was that story about the uh, the money changers in the temple from the Bible? <laughs> Maybe not in the church, um, but there is there is a gift shop for the Bruton Parish run by the Episcopal Church that could be a perfect opportunity. You could go in and say, look, you know, I'd like to get some of this lumber and, and make some things out of it. Could I possibly put these items in here that you could sell and, you know, or I could sell them to you and you could sell them to parishioners. There's quite a bit of opportunity. The fact of the matter is you're probably just not going to find them for sale online. You're probably gonna have to do a little bit of digging in order to, to reach out to the nonprofits or the for-profit entities that manage these, um, historic places, ships, etc., and you probably will get pretty lucky. But there are lots of examples of this happening and that lumber coming up. So uh, great question, Zachary. Jason said, uh, I listened to you on Wood Talk for a while, but finally remembered to subscribe to your quote, real podcast. I don't know about that. But uh, yeah, by the way, folks, I do another show called Wood Talk. Um, with Mark Spagnuolo and Matt Cremona. And every time we do Wood Talk, we sit down and say, you know, we should do a better job of promoting our show. 
So uh, yeah, that's me promoting the Wood Talk podcast. Um, I try to talk about lumber here and not so much about woodworking. If you have woodworking questions, go to woodtalkshow.com. Submit your questions there or woodtalkshow at gmail.com. Anyway, uh, (laughs) sorry, Jason. Jason says, probably not the last time you're going to feel this question, but how long until consumer prices for lumber and wood products approach pre-COVID numbers? Or is this the new norm? Well, Jason, it's not the last time I'm gonna talk about it, and it's certainly not the first time. In fact, on this show, I think I've featured it three times. This is probably the fourth. Yes, prices are still high. There have been some drop. Um, Certainly prices have dropped in the construction lumber market. We've seen some dropping of prices in the hardwood market. I do not think it's going to return to pre-COVID prices. A, the hardwood market was flat for many decades. A lot of the common domestics, um, kind of utilitarian domestics like red oak and poplar, were sitting at the same prices, very close to the same prices since the 1950s. So frankly, a market correction needed to happen. It swung a little too far one way, so it's swinging back towards the cheaper side, but I do not think it's going to go all the way back to the other side. On manufactured products like plywood, I do not think it's going to go low anytime soon, not within a year. There's a lot of different factors at play there. The manufacturing side of things is constrained by raw materials. Raw materials have gone up. Shipping has dramatically gone up. So the actual manufacturers have massively high overhead and very, very low um, workforce. So they're trying to get by doing more with less. Now, the the um, spike in the construction market made a lot of people in that space a lot of money. They're turning around that money and reinvesting into capital improvements heavily in automation so that we don't get caught with a labor shortage problem in the future. We can't really control things like shipping logistics prices, um, you know, raw material prices, but being able to produce manufactured items being severely hampered because you only have two guys working in your factory shouldn't happen with further investment in automation. Now, what that's gonna mean is there'll be fewer jobs in the lumber industry, but ideally, the products will continue to flow. That's gonna take some time. Um, When I moved into the lumber industry uh, more than a decade ago now, I was shocked with how behind the times things were from supply chain management, um, things like the internet sites and stuff like that, really, really behind the times. The whole buying system was very much who you know. Buyers worked with literal Rolodexes, like paper Rolodexes on their desk. Um, it was, it's a, it's, it didn't need to change. It was always been done that way. And now the industry is being forced to change. And because of that comes investment in things like automation and modern modernization. So until that stuff is done, I don't think you're going to see dropping in prices. Um, it doesn't help that there's still strife going on in the war. There are COVID is still out there. There are still people constrained by some of that. Um, so it's gonna be a while. Um, what has not faltered is the demand. In fact, the demand for lumber products continues to rise. Even with a slight slump in construction, demand is still way up. Raw material demands are still way, way up. So no one has caught up. And because of that, prices will continue to be high. So sorry, I think settle in for at least a year. And even when it does return, um, it will be a new normal price. And don't be surprised if you're gonna see a dollar to $2 more per board foot than you used to pay like three years ago. Um, speaking of strife in the world, um, the Ukrainian war is still very much a thing. 
Um, very upsetting to see some of that. Of course, that's affecting the plywood market as well. But on possibly a positive note to this, Jason wrote in. Uh, thank you, Jason. Uh, Jason is constantly sending me stuff, sending me articles, things like that. I, I always have plenty of content for feedback and industry news because of somebody like Jason. So thank you so much, Jason. I, I don't know if I've ever said that in responding to any of my emails. But uh, anyway, uh, he says, my wife's second cousin um, recently immigrated to the US from Western Ukraine for obvious reasons. They've been living in my in-laws house and are getting their own place, but they need to furnish it. I was thinking about making something for the new home, but it occurred to me that I could try to make something out of um, what would be traditional uh, wood for Ukrainian furniture. So here's the question. What would be typical furniture species in the Ukraine, especially Western Ukraine? I found uh, the, below the below resource about export, but I don't know if this matches what Ukrainians would make their furniture out of. I can't imagine the people of Myanmar making all their furniture out of teak when they could, in other times, be exporting it, for instance. I love your thoughts and any resources you might have. So um, what Jason, the, the site that he's referring to is the Timber Trade Portal, which uh, timbertradeportal.com. Particularly interesting site because you can look up just about any country in the world and see what they're exporting and what they're what they're importing volume-wise and some general harvested species. So um, <clears throat> the Ukraine is not a, a massive uh, uh, timber exporter. They're often known as the breadbasket. or uh, always known as the breadbasket of the Soviet Union. They are um, agricultural, um, a lot of wheat and things like that. But <clears throat> they do export some lumber. And primarily, the primary harvested species are Scots pine, European oak, uh, common beech, Norway spruce, European birch, alder, European ash, hornbeam, silver fir. Um, primarily, though, they are a Scots pine exporter. Um, what do they say here? 42% of the total forest cover uh, are uh, softwoods, coniferous forests. And of that, 33% of that is Scots pine. Um, for hardwood, um, oak and beech are the most important, comprising 32% of, of what they export there. So um, this is very typical for Europe, um, Europe in general. What you'll find is the diversity of forests in Europe are, are certainly diverse, and you're going to find tertiary and quadrary species and things like that, but it's a lot of birch, beech, Scots pine, spruce, you know, and then the, the oaks and some of the maples. Those were the typical woods, have always been the typical woods going back to medieval times. Um, and it, it has to do with climate, right? Um, so unlike, and, and Jason mentions Myanmar, the big difference, obviously, Myanmar is Southeast Asia. It's a tropical climb. Um, Myanmar, uh, any of the Brazilian rainforests, things like that, uh, Obviously, much, 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 much greater biodiversity, um, a, a climate more conducive to the growing of trees. So you go to a place like Myanmar, and like Jason says, I don't know that they're building out of you know teak when they could be exporting it for you know it's more lucrative to export it. So what happens is, in country, we'll just stick with Myanmar. In country, you'll find a lot of the local domestic construction is being done with some of these tertiary species, or lower grade or smaller cuttings from something like teak. You know, the primary export being teak and the stuff that's not good enough to export, 
that has a you know a lot of knots or really really skinny narrow type stuff um, it's just you can't make any money by exporting it so they keep it in country and they use teak in that capacity in that grade in the country or you end up with other things tatajuba um, is a good tertiary species that you may find being used in local construction you'll even find some versions of rosewood um, being used but in, in very small quantities or riven with defects, quote defects, um, because it just, it's not worth uh, the export. You can't even get enough money for the weight to ship it so it stays in country. In Europe, it's a totally different situation. You don't have thousands and thousands and thousands of species in this dense tropical rainforest. You have a northern boreal forest or a temperate hardwood forest. And while there may be, you know, let's just say, I'm making this number up, folks. Maybe there's 20 different species in that hectare of forest. There are four that are major commercial manuf- major commercial producers, and those four species comprise like 90% of that forest. So you know you've got your 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 red oak and your beech comprising most of that forest, and then there's like uh, maybe some some. Fur, or excuse me, that's a softwood. Maybe there's a piece of ash. Maybe there is uh, a little bit of hornbeam or something like that. But you know, there, there's two trees out of that hectare of forest. Everything else are those primary export species. And the the logging trade has been around for so long in that region that they've been replanting multiple, multiple cycles and replanting for what the market actually wants. So in some instances, you're seeing that biodiversity on the decline and fewer and fewer of those tertiary species. So long, complicated answer here, Jason, is the species they'd be using are those main harvested, main export species. From a hardwood perspective, you're going to talk in uh, birch, beech, and oak, um, uh, maybe a little bit of European ash, which, by the way, Fraxinus excelsior, coolest botanical name in the wood world uh, for European ash, uh, instead of our boring Fraxinus americana over here on, in North America. Um, <clears throat> little tip of the cap to Stan Lee for, for that botanical name there. We appreciate that. Uh, so as far as uh, you know, the style of furniture, well, there's a whole rabbit hole in and of itself. When you start, obviously, you're going to have a lot of um, Russian influences on Ukrainian furniture, um, but you'll also see a lot of painted furniture. When I've looked up Ukrainian furniture or furniture within the whole region, um, Romanian, uh, Hungarian, all of that, I see a lot of similarities, a little bit more carving um, and some more natural wood, but I see a lot of similarities in brightly painted furniture like I see coming out of the Scandinavian region. And uh, honestly, I mean, Finland is just right across the water. Uh, in fact, there's a large population of Ukrainians in Finland now who fled, you know, for, for some safety uh, over to Finland. Huge, huge Russian-speaking population uh, in Finland as well. So there, there's going to be some blending of culture in there. I see a lot of that brightly painted stuff. And what you're going to find if you were to strip off the paint is you'll probably find a bunch of different species because they're working. what they're working with is the stuff that's not nice enough to be exported. So it's going to be narrower widths, shorter lengths, have a lower grade, maybe more knots, uh, more sapwood, things like that. So to compensate for that, they end up painting a lot of the furniture. So technically, you could say, well, this is made out of oak. Um, it may not be European oak, but it's oak, which they would have used and uh, would use in the Ukraine, but it's painted. So, you know, unless you want to strip the paint off, you can't really verify that. 
So anyway, Jason, more power to you, man, and, and bless you for thinking that way. I think that's that would be what a cool thing to help this family uh, furnish the home, and even cooler to go that next you know extra step and provide a little bit of home for them with the style of the furniture and even the same species that they would have worked with. Uh, this next question comes from Ash. He says, can we talk about rubber wood? Uh, I reclaim a lot of furniture, mostly uh, dining table, chairs, uh, sets. Um, people often throw this away during a move or upgrading apartment or whatever. And over the past two years, I picked up about seven tables and three sets of chairs. They've all been in good to great condition, um, and they've all been made out of rubber wood um, or the ever enigmatic, quote, plantation hardwood, end quote. I've had several people tell me that it's a junk hardwood and not worth making into anything else. There we go again. How many times have I talked about that on the show? That's junk wood. That's crap. Don't use it. Um, that to me is incentive to use it. Somebody says that. It's like challenge accepted. So uh, let's see. They, they refer to it as junk wood, not worth making anything. I don't agree. He says, I've used it in several projects that I built for myself and a few for my friends with results that have met or exceeded expectations. So my question is, is recycling the only way to source this wood? Is there not a market demand for this outside of factory mass production of economy furniture aimed at the middle-class home? Have you ever done any work with it? Uh, answer the last question first. Yes, I have briefly in the same capacity you're talking about. It was in a piece of furniture uh, that I restored from my mother-in-law. Um, it was mostly just sanding down a little bit of planing. Um, I had to uh, clean up a table leg that had been eaten by a golden retriever puppy. Um, and then refinishing it. That was that was really it. Um, same expe um, same experience you had. Uh, it was plenty fine to work with. Nice grain. Um, the little bit of carving I did in it and fixing that leg was quite nice. Uh, the first question was, is there a way to source the wood? Uh, the answer is you've already discovered it. Um, it's in the form of furniture. The primary, well, let's just look at it this way. The primary export of rubber wood is in furniture form. It's not a species, you would consider it one of those tertiary or quadrary species I was speaking about earlier that doesn't get exported for lumber. It gets exported in a manufactured good like furniture or cutting boards or something like that you'll find in crate and barrel. Um, the wood itself does not really have the, the same value. So again, you have to weigh what's it going to cost to ship this per, you know, volume for weight and what's it going to sell for on the open market. Moreover, who is going to use it? Um, more than likely it's going to be a furniture manufacturer. Well, guess what folks? Most of the furniture manufacturers are not in North America anymore. Sad to say, but they've all gone out of business and they've gone off to Southeast Asia or something like that. So why ship a primarily furniture wood to a country that doesn't buy a lot of furniture wood when you can keep it right there at home, turn it into furniture and make a heck of a lot more money shipping it out? So the commercial demand for, the, for rubber wood is not as in lumber, but as in rubber wood furniture. The other thing about the species, and again, you'll find that it's one of those conglomerate species where there's several different species that get rolled up under the name rubber wood. They're, the actual other common name for rubber wood is plantation hardwood, and that's what he's talking about in his question. Uh, sometimes known as parwood or Malaysian oak. Um, the wood database actually puts a, a Latin botanical name on this, which I find kind of funny because I think there's just too many species to say it's this particular one. They call it Hevea uh, brasiliensis, but again, that's a Brazilian, um, Brazilian native wood. 
a lot of this manufactured wood is coming out of Southeast Asia and China, and they're using their own version of rubber wood um, because it has been plantation hardwooded in in those uh, Asian plantations as well, which is, which is why I think the common name has now become plantation hardwood. The fact of the matter is, it's not a particularly big tree. Um, it's not a particularly large, wide, like large trunk tree. So the lumber that it makes is relatively small. So how it often gets used in furniture is glued up into those large panels, like finger jointed panels and things. That makes great sense. You can imagine trying to export that in individual sticks of lumber. Nobody's going to buy it. But if you finger joint it together, go through the le- the labor and the glue expenditure of creating larger panels, maybe you could export those larger panels. But here again, who's going to buy them? A furniture manufacturer is going to buy them. Again, why send it to North America when I've got a furniture manufacturer that, oh, by the way, is owned by the same company who's milling those boards in, milling those tiny boards into panels. It's probably even next door. In fact, the guy that took the panel out of the, the glue press just walks it next door to the guy who's making it into a table. It's all one-stop shopping over there. And it's going to be, I would say, nigh on impossible to source rubber wood directly. You're going to have to reclaim it. And it's probably actually would be cheaper to go buy a piece of, of you know, mid-range furniture and cut it up to use for rubber wood instead. So, yeah, interesting look into the, uh, the global economy there. Uh, finally, uh, John wrote in and he says, he says, I emailed a year or so ago about whether it would be worthwhile to cut down an English walnut and saw it into boards. I have no memory of that. And I'm hoping that I responded to him and he's not saying I emailed you a year ago and never heard back. If you never heard back from me, John, I apologize. Uh, hopefully I get back to you. Um, he, he said, um, so he goes on to say, uh, the tree didn't have to be cut down, but it was a nuisance to the neighbors. It was dropping walnuts all over the place and an area we were trying to use for restaurant seating. Um, it was keeping other desired plants from growing and it was full of all that great lumber. So the promise of that sweet lumber was an offset to the cost of removal. And when it was finally cut down yesterday, there was almost no heartwood and almost all sapwood. The growth rings in the sapwood were like three quarter to one inch thick. Live and learn? But help me learn, why so much sapwood? Could the sapwood have been used as lumber? I had the tree company bucket to firewood link, so now I have some really expensive firewood once it's split, moved, and seasoned. Well, John, Sorry to hear that you've already bucked it into firewood because yes, sapwood is perfectly usable as lumber. Um, uh, now, I he included a pic of, of the log end so you can see just how much uh, sapwood and how little of the trunk is hardwood. And I'm actually going to uh, include that as the featured image of this episode. So whatever your podcast catcher is, whatever device you're looking at, whether or not it shows the images, um, that's the image we're looking at. If not, go to lumberupdate.com. The image will be there as well. Soundcloud.com will be used as the featured image, all that fun stuff. So the, the question is a couple fold here. Why was there so much sapwood? Um, could it be used as lumber? So let's answer that second question first. Yes, it could absolutely be used as lumber. Technically, if you get really into the nitty gritty and you slice it into tiny little slivers and you put it on a slide under a microscope, you'll find there's some slight structural differences and that the sapwood itself may not be as hard as the heartwood. Um, A lot of the technical properties like its bending strength and stiffness will be lesser than that of the hardwood, but not dramatically so. And a lot of that can also be tainted, 
I don't know if taint is the right word, it's kind of a negative word, um, can be altered by the presence of more, uh, more moisture and a lot of the extractives and the nutrients and the sugars and things that will be in the sapwood. If the sapwood is drained to free water and dried, whether it be air dried or kiln dried, it is going to end up being very much like the heartwood, like so close that you're not gonna tell the difference. You're not gonna be working it and go, oh my God, it's sapwood, it's totally different experience. Certainly, results will vary from species to species. What is organic, folks? It's gonna vary from one species to another. Heck, it could vary from one tree to the other, depending on where it grew. Go back to my soil chemistry episode to learn more about that little rabbit hole. But sapwood is perfectly usable. In fact, look at a species like hard maple. What we sell is the sapwood. Hard maple's heartwood is actually brown. The white stuff that we call hard maple is actually the sapwood and it works just fine and boy is it hard as anything. Um, walnut has a lot of sapwood in it, which kind of addresses this other question about why there's so much, so much sap. Because there's so much sap in walnut, there's been this whole sub-industry of steaming walnut in order to blend some of those heartwood extractives into the sapwood to blur the line between heartwood and sapwood, but also to extend the amount of usable heartwood in a walnut tree. So, there's no reason why you can't use it. You're not going to find dramatically different working properties or greater movement um, in that sapwood, um, assuming that it's been dried and drained of water and sugars and all that stuff that's gonna attract the bugs. So I'm sorry to hear that it was bucked to length because if nothing else, the sapwood of walnut looks a lot like butternut. And I frankly love the look of butternut and have built furniture out of butternut and it's absolutely wonderful stuff. Maybe, you know, if it was buck to length and 36 inch lengths or even 24 inch lengths, you can still get furniture parts out of that. Maybe split a couple of those into billets and see what you can do with it. But why was there so much sapwood? Well, there's a couple things. As I already mentioned, walnut, just the tree itself, has a lot of sapwood. It's a particularly gnarly tree. Um, it branches very readily um, when not in a forest canopy. All of that growth, all of those branchings uh, require just means a lot more sapwood. Certain species are gonna have more than, than others. Walnut's one of the ones that has a lot more. And you could really get into the technical botanical regions behind that. I'm not a botanist, so I'm not even gonna venture um, to, to pretend on that side of things. But as a lumber guy, I can tell you there is a lot of sapwood in walnut. So looking at the picture that you sent, John, doesn't surprise me. The, the diameter of the trunk we're looking at, it's not a huge, huge diameter. Um, so looking at that and seeing two thirds of that as sapwood seems very, very common for walnut. But further answer to your question is what you said about the growth rings. The growth rings in the sapwood are three quarter to one inch thick, which meant that tree grew particularly fast. It probably had a lot of sunlight, had a lot of moisture. Um, it, it, was, it didn't live a tough life, just put it that way. It was growing like crazy all the time. Well, the faster the growth, the more sapwood there's going to be. The, you know, remember, heartwood is technically dead. Heartwood is where all the waste products from the living tree have been transported into the middle, and that's why heartwood is darker in color. The sapwood is what keeps the tree alive. So if that tree is growing fast, um, and sequestering carbon at a faster rate, it's gonna have a lot more sapwood. And the fact that it's layering on these really, really thick rings means there's even less time for that transformation of sapwood into dead heartwood and the coloration that happens from the transporting a waste material down the medullary rays into the heartwood. 
So were you to keep that walnut growing for another 10 years, um, you certainly would see more heartwood in the middle. But I think if it continues to grow at that fast rate, you're going to still see a proportional, the same proportions of sapwood to heartwood. So it's growing really, really fast. So over the course of 10 years, that tree may put on a huge amount of diameter in its central trunk, but you still will be looking about the same. You'll look at it and say, okay, there's about two thirds sapwood, one third heartwood. It just so happens that one third heartwood will be quite a bit more you know, usable boards with board, board footage, board width coming out of the center part of that tree. Um, as I said, it varies from species to species, but it is particularly interesting with city trees that don't often have a huge amount of competition for sunlight other than the buildings around them. Um, they grow quite quickly. And because of that, there is more sapwood. So live and learn, John. Um, and hopefully you can salvage some of that to use for something somewhere along the way. And that brings me to the end of my questions. Great questions this week, folks. Lots of uh, diversity in our questions. We're like, we're like a forest that's sequestering carbon at a fast rate. We have great diversity in our questions. So here again, folks, if you have a question or you have a comment on anything I've talked about, if you want to further educate me like Bart did, thanks again, Bart. I appreciate that. Send your inquiries, send your feedback, send everything to lumberupdate at gmail.com or go to lumberupdate.com, fill out the contact form. Find me on Instagram at lumberupdate as well. I, I love hearing from you. Um, can't wait to answer your questions. And in the meantime, go buy some lumber that has sequestered carbon at a certain rate. Don't know what that rate is. Not going to venture what the rate is, but it's sequestered carbon. See ya. <laughs>